graveyard in Ballyshannon, County Donegal. Are you all right? Two men meet. They haven't seen each other in over 50 years. This isn't where I thought this story would begin. But now, it makes perfect sense. I can tell you stories about your dad out in the golf club, out in the golf club in Bundoran, and the nights playing poker. <laughs> that with my father and Jim Carroll and Christy O'Connor and... The two men are Peter Daly and Thomas Cassidy. Thomas and his wife are up on a weekend trip from Dublin. Peter is the older of the two men. Both are visiting their parents' graves. That's my father's grave there. Is it? Well, we'll say it. Mammy. We'll Mammy and Daddy. It's a big one too. Look at the big weed. And I had, I had somebody put stones all over it, but look where the weed grows. The weed all this come up. Never heard her called Sarah. Sarah, no. Never heard her called Sarah. It was always Sal. She was 90. Uh, she was 80, 89. You see me, she's my mother. Certainly. How did you and your mum die? Uh, 2000. 2000. 2000. My mum died in 2003. So. Peter's father died many years before his mother. Oh, no. At a time when everything was changing in Peter's life. 76. What is it, 72, is it? 70, it was 73 days of his second, 72nd birthday. I was in prison at the time. Probably no may I stop here. No, why are we doing in prison? Uh, <laughs> it's a long story. Can I find that on the internet as well? Uh, I, I, I was supposed to have uh, shared money that was uh, for drugs. Another man took from a, a hundred, we made a hundred kilo collar in New York City. That's right, you were in the guards, you were in the police in New York. Yeah, I remember right. you there. No, yeah, 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 yeah. Go on and, and tell and me. That was, uh, it was 100 kilos, the biggest seizure ever made in New York at the time. So. That's your badge. Yeah. Does it still work? <laughs> Could you flash that? Well, I, I don't know, <laughs> I'll tell you. But I, well, you I wouldn't take a chance on that. <laughs> I'd end up in Rikers Island uh, or somewhere. That's exactly, that's right. But anyway, that was it. And, and then he was supposed to have taken five kilos and we shared in the whatever he sold it for and so on. So he ratted out to the government. It's a long story. And you went to jail for it? Yeah, I was ten years in prison. You were not? Well, I wasn't ten years, but that's when I got a sentence of ten years with, another, with my partner. But mostly because the two of us refused to testify to uh, guilt. give information. And, and then you went with you to jail over there? Yeah. And tell me, and now, because you still have the thing on the television, was it, was it, was it really tough? It, it was tough, but it wasn't tough like you see on television. There's an exaggeration and everything. A, po a poetic license, they call it. <laughs> that evening, Thomas and his wife returned home to Dublin, intrigued by Peter's story. And that's the same reason I'm here. Last August, Peter Daly turned 80. Peter is a typical elderly, grey-haired, old-school gentleman, always impeccably dressed. I, like many others in Ballyshannon, have known Peter all my life. As a teenager growing up in small-town rural Ireland, Peter was a man who brought Hollywood cops and gangsters to life. Peter's story involves narcotics, money, loyalty, informants, honour, regret, the FBI and a grand jury. In two weeks' time, I will follow Peter to New York 
as he retraces his footsteps along his old beat and attends a reunion dinner held in his honour by his old NYPD unit. Unusually, for an emigrant of his time, Peter got a very good start in life, coming from a respectable middle-class family. Well, I was born in Ballyshannon in County Donegal in Bishop Street in Ballyshannon. My father rented a house there. I think he, when he finished medical school in, in Dublin, he was in the College of Surgeons where he won a, a gold medal. And uh, I think his name is still up on the wall in the College of Surgeons in Dublin, Patrick Daly. I was born in 33. Peter's sense of loyalty, which got him into trouble in later life, was fostered in him at an early age. But I remember being in the Boy Scouts here, which was very rare now, and we had a man by the name of Paul Dolan. I remember distinctly saying that that was one thing that characteristic that you had to have as a young Boy Scout, not to give up any information on your friend. That friendship was built on, uh, on uh, trust, trust of your friends and, and, and don't give them up and so on. And uh, actually that's how me all, all through my life have been like that. As Peter grew up in Ballyshannon, the world around him was at war. American GI stormed Normandy beaches as Irish people rationed tea, petrol and candlelight. As a young boy, Peter had little interest in school, despite his father's best efforts having enrolled him in boarding school in County Westmeath. Oh, the secondary school. Then I went to secondary school. I came back here and I told my father, I'm, I'm not learning anything in multi-farm. I said, it's a waste of your money. I said, I'm only interested in football, women and, and dancing. And he said, uh, well, you go to the secondary school here. So he sent me to the secondary school in Ballyshannon. It just opened at the time. And I went to the secondary school here in Ballyshannon. And then I, I wasn't satisfied. I, an uncle came home, John from New York, my father's brother, and uh, I, I pleaded with him to take me to New York, and of course he didn't, and then I pleaded with my father to let me go to New York to, to be with John. So uh, I left here in 1952 and went to New York. I was 19 years of age, and uh, I went out there to, to prove myself that I was going to amount to something in this world. The first night in New York actually was sitting on the Hudson River on the deck of the boat we went. We were a day early. They weren't docking until the next day. And we were sleeping out on the, on the deck of the boat and looking at the traffic going up and down what, what turned out to be the West Side Highway. And, uh, that was it, so we, that was New York, with lights all over the place. And Next day we got off the boat and I went to my uncle's house. And Then a week later he got me a part-time job in a local supermarket. Soon after, Peter volunteered to fight in the Korean War and was stationed as a sergeant on the 38th parallel. Returning home to New York, he became an American citizen. Peter had always wanted to be a cop in the biggest city in the world, Within a few years, his ambition became a reality. Yeah, January the 18th, uh, 1961, I was appointed to the police academy and uh, I was given the f police shield of 7347. I thought that was lucky, it was three sevens. 
I started off as a beat cop, walking the beat for hours and hours, and the police had little tricks too, you see. I remember one night, very bad winter's nights now, the, the, the sergeant would say that he didn't want a wet cop, so he would tell you to be fit and fiddle, you know, fit as a fiddle at night time, but it'd be very bad weather, so we used to leave the raincoats hanging outside, so when you finish cooping, you put on the raincoats. Anybody would have thought you were out all night, but we used to go to an undertaker's, a Jewish undertaker's, and we used to sleep in the caskets. We used to get into the caskets and sleep or rest. You carry, sometimes it was very funny because you'd fall asleep for a few minutes in the middle of the night and you'd have an alarm clock there in the thing with you and the alarm would go off and you can imagine what it was like in a mortuary with three caskets and all of a sudden three policemen sit up because the alarm goes off. There's nobody else in the place, only you. <laughs> Peter's life story is an extraordinary one. I had known Peter spent time in jail in New York, but when delving a little deeper, I discovered old newspaper articles, which are at odds with the man that I know. The New York Times, March 9, 1974. 12 in police narcotic unit charged with corruption. 12 present and former members of the police department, including two lieutenants, were indicted yesterday on federal charges of stealing cash from narcotics dealers reselling heroin they had seized in an arrest and offering bribes to fellow officers to hinder prosecution of drug traffickers. All 12 men were assigned to the elite special investigating unit of the Narcotics Division from December 1969 to November 1970. The defendants, most of whom were arrested yesterday, allegedly realized a total of $434,100 from corrupt practices during the five cases. Peter was accused in a separate indictment of reporting his 1970 income at $5,581, when it was actually almost 30 times that, at $152,000, although this charge was later thrown out of court. My understanding of the story, based on a childhood perception of cops and robbers, was a long way away from the gritty reality of an infamous period in NYPD history. It's two weeks since we were in the graveyard in Ballyshannon. We're in a car, driving to 17th Street in Midtown, passing through Peter's old precinct in Lower Manhattan. The driver is Peter's old partner and best friend, John Hartigan. Look at that. What? There's patios with trees on them. Look at that. Steelworks. This was, this was drug haven. Delancey Street. This was drug. Oh. Haven. Commercial. I, I had a homicide down here when I was in the homicide squad, and we were down here, the, the crackheads, we were talking to them in the morning, and they didn't know who we were in the afternoon. They were so bombed out of us. My God, look at this place. This place was a den of inequity, I'm telling you. This whole Lee Mackles. Rivington Street. Rivington Street. Remember the, Moish, the candy man? Uh, well, the last time I was here was 07. 2007. I just got my hip done in 2006 and I came over here for a reunion. John was my chauffeur all the time. Thank God my guiding, ca my guiding angel. So he's still doing it. When I die, I'm going to put on my headstone 
he died on the United States of, of America over a million dollars. And down at the grass line, it'd be he, 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 he coming up by the grass. That's that's the way I... Well, when I got out of prison then, I still had the IRS. And John came with me, he drove me up there. IRS in Rockland County. And I reported in there. John and I sat in a beautiful, calm visiting room with all sorts of phony plants around you and wall-to-wall carpet and everything else. We sat there like a confessional box. And the guy came out, a little Italian guy with him, with a, uh, a small moustache. And he came out and he said, Mr. Peter Daly. And I said, yes. And John was reading the paper. He took me in then and he interviewed me. I said, well, I'm, on, I'm working for a lawyer as an investigator. I'm getting a paycheck of something, $200 a week or something like that. And I pay this for my laundry and that for my so-and-so and that for my food and this, that, and the other. And he said, oh, would you tell me if you had any accounts overseas? I said, no, I wouldn't. He said, what are you going to do, put me back in prison? So that was it. He filled out the forms and I left. That was the last I heard of him. The Special Investigations Unit, SIU, within the NYPD, was set up in the late 1950s. Their job was to investigate major players in the New York underworld. This brought them into contact with large amounts of money and large amounts of narcotics. Between 1968 and 1971, SIU's membership peaked at 73 officers. SIU detectives weren't ordinary detectives. They were dressed to the nines and carried themselves with a certain swagger. They were an elite. They were, as a judge once described, princes of the city. However, it wasn't long before tragedy followed. By 1976, 52 detectives had been indicted, two had committed suicide, and many others had been compromised in one way or another. In Peter's case, what brought him to the attention of prosecutors was a 100 kilogram seizure of heroin and cocaine, known as the 100 key case. It was then the biggest drug seizure in United States history. On April 19th, 1970, Peter and other members of SIU arrived at apartment 4F at 210 West 19th Street in Midtown Manhattan. Rudolph Giuliani was the district attorney charged with cleaning up the city at that time. His colleague, Joseph Jaffe, prosecuted Peter's case. My name is Joe Jaffe, and uh, at the time that you're concerned with, I was an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York. I commenced that job in 1971. I left in 1977, and I was assigned to the corruption unit. And at the time of the trial of Peter Daly, I was the, the head of the official corruption unit. We were conducting an investigation into various allegations about the police, New York City Police Department Special Investigations Unit of the, SI, the SIU, that's of the Narcotics Division. The 100 key case, the way they got to the 100 keys, they followed some people. Ultimately, they got the, the address of a place where they went. And then they find the, quote, 100 keys. And then they get a warrant. 
Well, the way the system is supposed to work is first you get the probable cause, then you get the warrant, then you execute it. But it wasn't a hundred key case. It was at the minimum a hundred five key case. And those five keys, they sold them. And they divided the money. And that makes them the same as any other under the present laws today in the United States, Class A felon. And you'd get the same schedule here. You sell a kilo of 90% pure heroin or cocaine, you're an A felon. It makes you an absolute drug dealer. Some of the people involved, not particularly Mr. Daly, had no compunction about stealing whatever they could get their hands on at any time from any person, by any means, whether it was money, whether it was jewelry, whatever it was. And that was as an organized group. Absolutely crooks. If you, if you steal money, I don't care if you steal from bad guys or good guys, you're a thief. You're, you're no better or no worse than anybody else who's doing it. You are worse to the term that you're supposed to be stopping it, not doing that. What was so serious about Peter and his colleagues' actions was that they didn't just keep back five kilograms of heroin and cocaine they subsequently sold it on for personal gain. Unbeknownst to them, Rudolf Giuliani had escalated his fight against corruption. He had now a number of informers working within the Special Investigations Unit, including Peter's partner, Carla Aguiles. When Aguiles made his decision to testify, Peter could see there was going to be a witch hunt. After a serious car crash, Peter was off work for a year, during which time he got his pension from the New York City Police Department. In 1974, he came back to Ballyshannon, where his father was still a GP. He was indicted by a grand jury in his absence, but was safe in Ireland, as there was no extradition treaty between the United States and here. He felt so safe and confident that he even sent a postcard to his former partner, Carla Guiles, from his local post office in Ballyshannon. In Christmas 1974, Peter travelled to England to visit relatives. He was aware that the US and the UK had an extradition treaty in place, but like all NYPD SIU detectives, he felt confident that he wouldn't get caught. I was staying in a, in a motel up in Liverpool. It was a small town outside Liverpool. I was meeting my cousin, Robert Goff, and Robert said to me, the hotel is crawling with policemen. It was... Uh, about two or three weeks after the Birmingham bombing. And of course, I hadn't known anything about the Birmingham bombing. I wasn't part of the IRA or anything like that. But uh, we were both walking down the stairs and we were divided by a man that was coming up the stairs. So we stood on either side of him and he passed up. And I, I tapped Robert when he, after he passed. And I said, Robert, that's, that's a policeman. And the next thing, the man turned around and he says, uh, my name is Inspector so-and-so, uh, could I have uh, see your passports and so on? So we gave him our passports and he read them and so on. Thank you very much. And we went down to our dinner. So I told Robert, now this is not very good because my name is probably in a computer. It was the beginning of the computers. So in the morning time we got up, I took a Valium to sleep that night and I woke up in the morning time. We went down to breakfast and we were having scrambled eggs. I remember it very well. 
and Robert, we could see out through the French windows there was four men getting out of two cars. So I said to Robert, I said, this is, this is it, there's somebody for me. And he says, no, no. He says, we'll fight them. Now, he worked for a mining company in Shannon at the time, so he, was, he wasn't a, in a good position to be questioned either because they were selling dynamites and stuff like that to mining companies in England. So I said to him, I said, this is not your fight, this is my fight, so stay back. So anyway, they came in and I was having my breakfast and they said, are you Peter Daly? Yes. And I said, yes, yes, and yes. And they escorted me out to the car and they took Robert with them. And of course, I said, that's my cousin. And he's, they took our suitcases from the room and the whole lot. Then Robert brought the news home that I got arrested. And I was sent on to Pentonville. They escorted me and took me down by train to Pentonville uh, prison. The first night in prison in my life, lying with just a, a cushion under me and one blanket over me. It was very cold now, I must admit. But anyway, that, that was it. That was my arrest. Peter spent five months in Pentonville jail, fighting extradition to the US. Of the 12 charges against him, eight were thrown out. Peter was the last of his unit to get charged in relation to the 100 key case. Bob Lucy was one of the key informants in Peter's unit at that time. My name is Bob Lucy, L-E-U-C-I, Leucci, they say, yeah, but I anglicize it, huh? And uh, I was a detective in New York from 1962 to 1981. And, uh, you know, I, since I retired, I really lecture about police work and write. I've written seven books, published seven books, uh, one memoir and novels, and I teach police around the country. and, and and I also teach at a university here in Rhode Island. I do teach, I do, have, do do lectures occasionally on political science stuff. We talk about contemporary issues in political science where we talk about, you know, international corruption, that sort of stuff. I spend some time, you know, studying all that and I know a little bit about it. And I've had an interesting life. I mean, up until now, I mean, I've gotten away so far, you know, with, you know, I've lived this life. I mean, it was what I did. I, you know, from the time I was 22, 20, you know, I was 21 when I was appointed and I was in the police department. You know, then for the rest of my career, it really was, uh, you know, like the Old West, really. It was a dream job in many ways. I mean, it was glory, glorious. Can you imagine what it was like in the 60s in New York, mid, late 60s? It was, you know, flower children everywhere, people party time, love, sex, rock and roll, you know what I'm saying? Drug, sex, it was all over the place. Can you imagine a city where everyone was corrupt? People said, well, you know, it couldn't have been that bad. Yeah, it was that bad. So Peter came into that world where there were cops, bosses, other guys who made fortunes. Really made fortunes of money. You know? And a lot didn't, but many did, you know. So they made a lot of money, you know, and those and spent a lot. So when Pete came here into the city and heard all these stories, he heard you hear in the police academy you hear it all. You know, people talking about, you know, my uncle's a con, you know, God he just bought a nice house, he bought a new boat, you know. These guys are making money. And Pete's, you know, when am I, when's my turn? When am I going to do it? And that big case that he gets involved in with this 105 kilos, first of all, I thought it was 110 kilos, number one. Uh, there was no money there. And now these guys work so hard. You come up with that, the biggest seizure since the French Connection, bigger than the French Connection, and there's no money? Are you kidding me? 
right? So these guys are sitting around, and Aguilas, the genius that he is, says, well, if there's no money here, fuck it, we'll take the drugs. You see, once you become a drug dealer like that, and once that happens, then you're lost altogether, as far as I'm concerned. I never did anything like that. I wouldn't dream of doing anything like that, you know? And Aguilas took those kilos, right? And he gave it to his brother-in-law, whoever it was, and he sold them. Now, Pete was part of all that. And he had to make a decision. Am I going to go, there's no choice, you know? Bob Lucy was as corrupt as anyone involved in Peter's unit at that time. However, by becoming an informant, he avoided going to prison. Peter was a different sort of a man. The lessons he had learned in the Boy Scouts in Ballyshannon as a 10-year-old was something he couldn't shake. Never give up on yourself or your friends. And you know, and Peter's story is, I think, amazing for what it is. Just for what it is. You know, you got, you got heads of mafia families nowadays testifying, cooperating. Biggest phonies and joke in the world. Right? And Pete says, I'm not telling you anything. You know what I'm guy's a donkey, Irish, you know anything? Hit him with a hammer. You know, get him to talk. He ain't talking. You know, and that's it. You know, and uh, so it's impressive. I love Pete, and I understand his life. You Irish guys are stand-up guys. Italians are rats all over the place. I mean, they, they can't, you gotta, you gotta put nails in their mouth to keep them from talking. You know what I'm saying? It's the truth. These Irish guys are used to keeping their mouth shut. I mean, I think he might be the only one in that entire freaking unit. In May 1975, Peter stood before a grand jury of three men and nine women. Throughout the interrogation and trial, Peter refused to cooperate and maintained his silence. I didn't cooperate in any form. They assumed that I was guilty and that was it, so I couldn't go any farther than that. I don't know what information I had, but it's still going on today. So there are people that will still tell me, you have to have it. You say, surely you must have some knowledge. I said, I didn't have any knowledge, and I, I wasn't going to share it with them anyway, whatever knowledge it was. I was interrogated by Mr Jaffe at least six, seven times, six o'clock in the morning, and uh, I didn't say a whole lot to him, but he asked me to listen. And I listened and listened and listened and listened. And I, when my lawyer came then, he said, I said, can you, you want to talk to your lawyer? I, I said, yes. Went out with my lawyer and came back in and my lawyer said to him, Mr. Daly respectfully declines your kind offers. And that was the whole situation. I did all the listening to Mr. Jaffe, very little talking to him. They would decide which room. There was two or three different rooms, of course. Being that I worked in the narcotics squad, I realised every room had to be wired, so there was, there, was no, there was no personality involved. So I'd go into the other room and I'd just, I'd just draw, draw a no on my hand so that there was no, nothing spoken between Mr Schofield and myself. So then he'd come back in and... He would say the same things I said to them. He respectfully declines your kind offer. Well, you would consider it to be foolishness, all right, but I'm still alive. Maybe prison helped me to put on a couple of years. After a week-long trial, the jury deliberated for less than two hours. Peter was taken to Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary, where he served time with 1,500 of New York's toughest gangsters. The irony is, if Peter had broken his silence, like many others in his unit, he would have escaped jail. 
However, that stubborn streak won him the respect of some of New York's most notorious mafia dons. I think the relationships that he developed while he was in prison are fascinating. You know what I'm saying? How these guys looked up to this big shooter. <laughs> he wasn't that big, but he was big enough, a tough guy in his day, you know, who stood up like a rock. And I know he went to prison, all the mafia guys loved him. You wouldn't believe it, the mafia, whoever made contact with them on the outside when I went to the Federal House detention in New York, the first night they were trying to figure out where they were going to put me, uh, uh, what cell or what, what bed I was going to take up. And one of the officers said to the other officer, uh, the old man wants him in his cell. So they said, OK. So they put me in the cell with an elderly man. And uh, I woke up in the morning about 6 or 7 o'clock. I was on the top bunk and he was on the bottom bunk. And then I saw him sitting at the table out in front of the cell. I walked out to the man and he said, my name is Tommy DeBella. And I didn't tell him my name, he knew it. And then he cut a grapefruit in half and he said, that's yours and this is mine. And we went on from there, but I didn't realize that Tommy DeBella was the, the biggest man in the prison. He was the head, then supposed to, supposed to be the head, alleged to be the head of the Brooklyn crime mob. Jimmy the Gent Burke was a personal friend of mine. Jimmy was an absolute gentleman to me all the time I was in there. And, and Jimmy used to hijack trucks from, from coming in from New Jersey with cigarettes on them and food, stuff and everything, everything. And he used to... Jimmy was known that he would rather give you two behind the ear than give you two in your hand. They were, it was a little lead called a bullet. Uh, and uh, uh, that was his uh, badge. But Jimmy was very, very good to me all the way through. And he supposed to have plotted the Lufthansa, the biggest airline stick up in Kennedy Airport in New York City while I was in the halfway house with him. I was there in the halfway house and Jimmy and his friends were there, Bobby D. Simone and so on. And uh, so Bobby never turned up after that. He, he went missing. He ne his body was never found. The mob was very good to me when I got out to the, the farm in, in Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary because uh, they used to send me around a, a peanut box with uh, rice, and pheasants, cooked pheasants, you used to cook it in big, large, uh, large uh, barrels of water. And they used to make shivs. It's, that was a, a shiv was a piece of steel. It was like a knitting needle. It was fine, fine down to a sharp edge on both sides. And they, they were defensive measures of killing other people. There was something like 14 homicides in the prison while I was there, inside the wall. In early 1980, Peter was released after serving just five years. Shortly afterwards, he returned to his hometown of Ballyshannon, leaving behind a tainted NYPD career, a wife and children, his colleagues and friends, and the remnants of an old life. During his time in prison, he had missed his father's funeral. Back home, life would continue for Peter at a much slower pace. Things had changed in Ballyshannon, but things had changed in New York too. Frank Serpico 
was the first police officer in the New York City Police Department to report and testify openly about police corruption in the 1970s. His honesty helped kickstart a new era within the police, one in which systemic corruption would be virtually eradicated. Hello to all you listeners out there. And as I was taught in my youth from my Irish friends, uh, Aaron Gobra, and I am an Irish, uh, I am a green on green boy, that's it. I am a green on green boy, and I'm Irish through and through. Uh, my name is Frank Serpico. I'm a retired New York City police detective. I, I remember in the, in the middle of all this was going on, uh, you know, uh, when I was uh, testifying, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to testify against the guys I was working with. You know, I, I was under the impression that, uh, you know, boy, they go after that guy for taking a cup of coffee. When will they find out, you know, what's going on over here? You know, they're going to clean it up. I didn't know they, the money went all the way up, uh, you know, and uh, I'm of the opinion that um, the seed has to exist in you, you know. It's not planted in the police department. Yeah, I mean, we have corruption everywhere, in every walk of life in the medical profession, in the religious profession. Uh, people abuse their authority. But you would think in the place where you'd want it the least, the law, without, without justice, you don't have freedom. Police are exposed to the lowest equation of the human race, uh, race's behavior. And the corrupt ones, are quick to rationalize their superiority and take advantage of any money-making opportunity, no matter how vile, losing sight of the fact that in so doing, they become part and parcel of the degradation they loathe. You know, it, it becomes, uh, it becomes a, a fraternity, you know, and you gotta play by the rules. In my opinion, uh, there's no such thing as a crooked cop. If you're, you know, it's an oxymoron. I mean, a cop is a cop, you know. A crook that uses the uniform or hides behind the uniform, he's just, uh, you know, a thief uh, using a police uniform. Yeah, he's impersonating the cop, uh, of course. You know, people do strange things for power and money. They don't realize the, the worth of the human soul, you know. I had traveled to New York with Peter to attend a reunion with his old unit. What I hadn't counted on was to meet a group of men in their 80s who in many ways held on to an old mindset. There were no informants at this dinner. This was an old guard who 40 years after being disbanded, still stood side by side. Of course, that meant that I wasn't allowed to record. However, I did get to spend time with them, but only after Peter vouched for me. Back in Ballyshannon, Peter reflects on an extraordinary life. Most, most of the detectives in the unit, when they were being questioned about anything, they were given three choices to remain silent to inform or to commit suicide. That was the three choices. 
sometimes in trying to prove your innocence in a situation, uh, defining yourself proves that you're not innocent. Uh, I can't discriminate, I can't say anybody took anything, I don't know. Of course I was dishonest. I'm dishonest now. <laughs> We're all dishonest. Uh, you would have to make your own judgment. About cop work, you had to be you had to be a thief to catch a thief. It's an old movie title, but there's a lot to it. Uh, uh, Lucy wasn't there, and uh, Aguilas was there, and I don't. Between me and Bob Lucy and and Carl Aguilas, there was 110 kilos there, but Aguilas had other commitments to other people. That's all I'm going to say about I wasn't even born when Detective Peter Daly was released from prison. The Peter I know is an elderly gentleman whom I consider a friend. Peter didn't sail through life. He made waves, some of which still resonate today. I can honestly say that there must be a thousand regrets. I don't remember not regretting anything. I, I'm afraid I was brought up to know right from wrong and I would say my regrets are innumerable. I respect everybody I ever worked with. I respect my ex-wife. I respect everybody's opinion. Whether it's Ballyshan or New York, it would all be the same. It was all part of life. And please God, We'll pass away quietly into the night, in the end of it. God bless.